Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Archivist with Attitude podcast. I am your host, Joseph Shea, the Archivist with Attitude. It is Sunday, September 27th, 2020, and this episode is actually our 10th. I'm kind of excited about this one. We are going to cover a few things. This one might be a little lengthy because there's an article I want to read that is uh, a little long, but it's, I think, important and and was very interesting to me. Um, and I want to go take a step back here and explain part of the reason I'm really going to article focus this time is the last few, last couple episodes I've done, I have cited some things but haven't really read directly from them, and I'd like to try to uh, correct a little bit of that. I had a friend of mine who is a listener say that he would really like me to to really dig into some of my sources that I that I quote that I instead of paraphrasing like, and so I, I appreciate that. It takes every you know no matter how good you think you are, sometimes it it takes others to keep you honest and keep you on top of your game and so to to my friend Chris who's a listener I want to tell him thank you uh he's our IT guy at work and super cool dude and and I want to thank him for that so for today we are going to look in depth at a few different articles and with it being almost the end of September going into October we are very very close to election season and I've done some soul searching and some thinking and I'm really and I, and I've come to the conclusion that I believe it's time for me to really kind of say what I think and and really say what I feel and and the article today covers some some things I've been thinking about and and feeling with the upcoming election and 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 I want to be kind of open about my biases but explain where they come from and and that Every opinion that I have, and every I, every thought that I have regarding politics and the election, et cetera, et cetera, I try to ground in understanding of history and historic fact and such. So we're going to cover an article today on on some kind of scary potential outcomes for the election, and it's a bit extreme. I will will grant you, or at least I hope, but. There are some ground movements afoot that are a little frightening right now, um, and we're seeing rise in the the Proud Boys and the extreme right, and guys walking or marching down the street with automatic weapons and Nazi symbols on American flags. And I've talked about this before, and and it's really unnerving to have armed, angry men, mostly men on the streets and having your elected leader of your country and his religious cohorts and religious leaders in the country egging these gentlemen on and pushing them to make some very irrational decisions and and pushing them to be violent and to violently protest. It's funny because you've gotten to me, well, it's not funny, it's a little spooky, that you've got national leaders pushing groups of people to be violently protesting when an organic group that comes out and openly rebels against this group that is being told by 
the president and his cohorts to be violent and raise hell. They're coming out to quell that. And it's funny to me because the group that's coming out to quell that are anti-fascists. So I think when you put two and two together, you realize that anti-fascists are stopping who? And I'll let you all think about that for a bit. So let's get right into it. Um, so a friend of mine, Ian Carter, um, long time, we've been friends for a lot of years. He's a social justice, a legitimate social justice fighter down in, down in Oregon. And he's seen a lot of hell down there and, and has been one of my contributors. And, and I hope he doesn't mind my mentioning his name. But he, in, in terms of kind of what's actually been going on in the streets of Portland as he lives down there and, and giving me some, some and, and giving everybody actually, because he posts a lot on, on Facebook about what is going on really in Portland, and I greatly appreciate that. And so he posted this, uh, it's essentially a blog, um, but it's, and it's on a website, medium.com. The author of the piece is Mike, and I'm sorry if he happens to come across this podcast for the mispronunciation of his name, if I am, but Mike Selinker, S-E-L-I-N-K-E-R, and he is a war game, video game, I'm assuming video game designer or a strategy game designer, and the art or his uh, blog is, the title of the blog is, A War Game Designer Defines Our Four Possible Civil Wars, and I'll post the link to this in the description of the podcast so any of you that that want to take a look at it again can and i think um what i'm going to try to do because this is a lengthy article is paraphrase what i can and then read what i think is important from it um so he wrote this essay and it's going to appear in an edition of gay uh, book i believe called game theory in the age of chaos and he's got some links in here to find out when the book is going to be out and, and a following for him on Twitter. Uh, he gives a little background of himself. He says, I'm a war game designer. I co-developed the first reboot of Axis and Allies and its D-Day edition, made a mythological Risk game called Risk Godstorm and burned down both the Roman Empire and Gloria Mundi and medieval France and Veritas. Um, and even as a gamer, I'm not familiar with these, so if, if any of my listeners are and they want to let me know what the score is, I'd appreciate it. So if you want to get a hold of me on the Facebook page for this um, I, and, and let me know what these are, that's cool. Uh, he says uh, he writes about game theory learned from simulating war outcomes. Like many people, I'm stuck on this as the likely outcome of our situation and and basically what he's arguing is that um that you know we are with the uprisings of various groups of people we're seeing a deep-seated angry culture and clash of ideals and it's i mean it's no joke and it's a little spooky right now and i'm not gonna lie so Reading this article made me think about this in a much more um, serious fashion than I had been. Uh, I I seriously think we, and I'll get to this a little more at the end of this, but I seriously think we don't have to go down this road. I think everybody needs to take a step back and take a breath and 
and sit down and, you know, start looking at things factually and, and really, really try to work through our differences because nobody wants, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but I would argue that sane, level-headed folks do not want violence. We don't want an uprising. We want our country to function. And I think there are agreements that can be had amongst all people and we need to just think about how best to get there. So um, he wrote that up until yesterday, I was thinking of a uh, thinking a civil war was, or up until yesterday, I wasn't thinking a civil war was probable. Then Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. With her like with her likely went the last chance the 2020 election will end peacefully. She told her granddaughter, and we're going to talk about the notorious RBG in a little bit too. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president install, is installed. And she has precedent there. When President Obama was on the end of his term, Justice Scalia, I believe it was, passed away. And they, he, they, you know, he had every right as president to nominate a replacement. However, the Republican Party in Congress said no. You need to wait and or wait until the next election. So the Republican leadership, i.e. Mitch McConnell in the Senate, would not allow a hearing, which actually was at the time unprecedented. Presidents at the end of their terms historically, you know, and Obama had, man, he had six months or better in his end of his term, and, and historically presidents have had that right. So, but the Senate wouldn't allow it. They wouldn't hear it. And, but they also came out and said um, that we'll set this precedent. And if a Republican is in the office after the 2016 election, and they happen to be at the end of their term, we will wait until the 2020 election is said and done before we appoint. So here we are at the 2020 election and Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away very sadly and we are facing that very situation and they're wanting to go ahead and press forward and uh, nominate and and do hearings for a new Supreme Court justice hypocrisy much so let's get back to this article and try to stay focused I don't want to jump too all over the place I want to try to stay pretty linear today um and so he goes on to basically say that that kind of the opening of the Supreme Court creates a kind of a firestorm potential for for how things could go south after the election. As he says, um, uh, you know, it's it's and I'm skipping through a little bit here, but it's worse than that because we expect this election to be contested if. If they have a majority, meaning Republicans, if they have a majority before then, it doesn't matter on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who wins the election because a six to three court will kibosh some some reason to or will kibosh some reason to hand Trump a second term. So the Democrats are threatening that filling Ginsburg's seat means they will create two to four more seats right after they win the Senate. If that happens, they might 
add DC and Puerto Rico as states or even change the rule of apportionment. They might, as my friend Cindy calls it, act ruthlessly. This is the stuff wars are made of. And when they say they, so the Democrats are afraid that the Republicans will, with um, having all of that power, will basically um, push forward measures without any discussion or or backing in it, and or with any discussion or any, hey, let's think about this before we go forward with it. And I will, I will freely admit I'm a Democrat, and I believe I've said this before. I'm the PCO chair for them for our for my little uh, voter district up where I live, and I'm a Democrat, but I'm also um, probably left on some things that they are, and some and a little further right on things than they are. So. I, I do my best to make educated judgments on things uh, based on fact, history, and knowledge. So, so he's what he basically does is he um, lays out kind of some of the stuff that's going on right now. Um, as he says, he says we find ourselves in a country where both sides can't imagine their loss would be legitimate. If Biden loses, his supporters will blame GOP trickery and voter disenfranchisement. If Trump loses, his supporters will blame voter fraud and riots. It doesn't matter that the first one of those is real and the second isn't. We are heading toward a reckoning. Because the stakes are this high, both sides have a huge incentive to fight for their outcome. And he talks about the... the uh, Protesters, those AR-15 wielding thugs that intimidated the Michigan legislator? Nobody stopped them then. Why would they be shy about it now? The only barricade to the Senate fill, or filling Ginsburg's seat is at least four Republican senators, perhaps. Perhaps. Murkowski, Romney, Collins, and Grassley breaking with their party and refusing to vote for new justice. They will get thousands of death threats, he writes. And so what he's talking about in the um, Michigan legislature is there was a there was a riot that happened there. And, and I'm sorry, I don't have the source on me right now. I can get that later if y'all should like. Um, so basically, he says that that however this plays out, it's going to be dangerous. So what I'm going to do is scroll down to... Um, to his various scenarios here of what um, what we're possibly facing. So scenario one, uh, this is this is election scenarios, mind you, and and Supreme Court. So let me get a drink of water here, and we'll look into it. Scenario one: a Biden blowout, comparable war, the American Civil War. This was the scenario the Transition Integrity Project wasn't worried about, wasn't worried about. If Biden wins 400-plus electoral votes, they think Republicans will be so devastated that they will do some soul-searching and come out a different party for it. And he argues, that's nonsense. Lincoln took office after an electoral blowout, winning 180 of the 303 electoral college votes, with no other candidate getting more than 93. One month later, he was evacuating Fort Sumter. 
In this case, Biden will have the authority to be seated as president. Trump can fight it, but it'll require states decertifying their own electors to give him a fraudulent majority. They might do it out of loyalty to the death cult, and I'm using I'm reading verbatim, so this is his wording, not mine. I try not to I try not to be this extreme. I may have some of these opinions. It's it's a think it not say it type thing as I'm Married to a teacher, that, that verbiage will make sense to a lot of you, I think. <laughs> it'll And he says, it'll be up to the Supreme Court to decide whether a state that voted for a candidate can have its vote changed by their legislature or governor. I think there will be at least, or there will at, at best be four votes for that, because Chief Justice Roberts hates Trump's overreach, and Neil Garouche is too independent. Even if Trump stalls out the Electoral College deadline of December 14th, the Democrats will have gained a thin majority of delegations in the House, too, and they'll put in Joe. In that case, the military will not let Trump stay after January 20th, because there is he, he is the president in the last couple of days. If anybody's been paying attention, which I'm sure most of my listeners are smart, and they do, uh, he has not outright said whether he would leave the office peacefully if if he is, loses. And that's a little... That's a lot unnerving and and unheard of in terms of of history. So, uh, um, Mr. Uh, or Mike goes on to say, the crushing of the Republican Party will lead to a breakaway movement. Whether it's as clean as voting for secession isn't clear. The battle here won't be between the states, but likely inside inside multiple states. You know, Biden will attempt a compromise similar to the compromise of 1870, you know, 1877 might work. He's that good. If it doesn't, he should get ready to put down a rebellion. Biden will have the military, which has rebelled against Trump's use of force for show. There's a huge difference between winning a war when you have all the tanks and winning a war when your opponent has all the tanks. You'd much rather have the tanks. Not... Scared yet? Change tanks to nukes. And so he basically goes on to explain that that the gov- it would come down to the government versus the right-wing militias that are protesting um, and some radicalized police forces that would come up against it, and it's going to be disastrous. Um He writes at the end of this piece, or at the end of this section, this is the good scenario, but only if Biden wins a massive victory. And again, I I will stop, pause here, and break down the Civil War thing. I, you know, I want in my heart of hearts to believe that, that people are smarter than this. I waver back and forth recently from the things I've seen on the media, but I also take and, and the things I've seen on Facebook and YouTube and everywhere else because I try to try to uh, take in as much media as I put or as much media from from all sides and all perspectives as I possibly can and in some cases can possibly stomach. However, I I don't know. And I've seen so much anger, even locally here in in our little small area, and so much hate speech, and so much just sheer blind rage that it is truly spooky to me. I would hope that however this plays out, it 
plays out peacefully and with with as little to no violence as possible. However, I don't know. We are in a very violent time right now, and it is spooky to me, and that's why I wanted to wanted to do this episode and why I wanted to talk about this stuff because it's it's scary and I think you know even though I've got a very small listening population hopefully that will expand and, and this is some good news and I probably should have said this at the beginning of the episode but we now that we're on on um, Apple iTunes and you can get us or get this show there hopefully that'll expand the audience a little bit but I know right now I've got a fairly small audience and I'm appreciative for all of you guys but I I, and I want this to get to you, and I want this to get to others, but but also, and and equally as important, I want it to be documented somewhere so that as things progress and go wherever they're going in the next several months to several years, that that what's going on gets documented because this is the kind of as a historian, the the individual writings and the individuals uh, who are living within the broader historical time period their notes their writings their recordings are vastly important to creating a complete and full picture of what was going on at the time all right back to the article scenario two a close biden win comparable war the russian revolution and he goes on to say this is the scenario where Democrats scrape out a close win for the presidency, get to 50 senators, including Arizona's Mark Kelly, who is seated in November because of his special election status. And the GOP hasn't quite gotten a replacement for Ginsburg's chair just yet, which as of this week, we're seeing that that's that likely may not may not be the case because Trump has already picked uh Picked Amy Barrett, and we'll, we'll see how that goes in the next few weeks. Um, we only got five or six weeks left of the election, so see how fast they push and how hard they go. And Mike says, here we have an offensive group on the outside of power with a somewhat clean victory and a defensive group on the inside of power that doesn't let go. This is the outcome that Russia is likely rooting for because they know it from experience when the february revolution hit russia in 1917 Tsar nicholas ii and his family were still alive but russia barely was devastated by world war one famines and strikes russia saw the autocracy step down in favor of a russian provisional government which lasted only eight months the bolsheviks of vladimir lenin gained the support of the people in that window and launched the october revolution in which they toppled the interim government but they didn't have the army, so they made one. The Bolshevik army was more than 5 million soldiers strong. This was an army for the outgroup, the interim government. What The interim government was backed by the white army, which had a still impressive 3.5 million soldiers. The first thing the red army did was kill the Tsar and his family to make it clear they weren't kidding around. But... They were far from assured victory. Notably, the rest of the world, the U.S., Britain, France, etc., was on the White's Army side. Su supply from these nations made a short civil war into a long one. In 1923, the Red Army won and became the largest standing army on Earth. In our case, in our case, we would have a popular candidate with a moral imperative to insist upon his rightful win. Of course, Biden could again 
be the source of compromise. It's in his DNA, for good or ill. A trade of the White House for a law fixing the Supreme Court size it, nine justices might do it. A communications director for a Republican senator told Yahoo News, and he gives a, a link, and this is why I'll give a link to this uh, in the comments, because the, the this gentleman really did his research and, and did some nice citations and some things here. So, is the Republican senator told, or director for a Republican senator told Yahoo News, I think a 6-3 to three court is worth the White House and Senate. The pro-life community has been waiting on this forever. There has to be a vote. If that's the deal he can get, the rest of the victorious Democrats likely won't give in. Because abortion would be illegal in a year, you could see Biden removed from the ticket and Kamala Harris backed by the Democrats. Lots of possibilities here. But the important problem is the military here. They're being asked to back an insurrection, a righteous justified one, but an insurrection nonetheless. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Miley has already declined this opportunity before Congress. They very likely sit out the scenario entirely, at the start anyway. So that leaves militias and cops and a lot of street corner bloodshed. The military can't sit out forever. Trump will use his ragtag band of troops where he isn't favored and the National Guard where he is. It'll get very ugly. This scenario also brings the possibility of a military or secret service coup. Since we've never had one here, and he says Al Haig doesn't count, and I should have looked that up, and I apologize, I didn't. It's hard to know what that looks like. It's probably, it probably starts with the Joint Chiefs of Staff suggesting that the President leave office. If he says no, I have trouble imagining a senior officer drawing a gun on the President. I wouldn't depend on the military. And then he goes on that basically we, you know, um, that in his conclusions, Russian civil war outcome is a very bad one. It's hard to say whether the good guys won or lost that one, but the important thing is that a whole lot of people died, 7 to 12 million people, possibly civilians. Then nothing got better in Russia for at least five decades. If we have a narrow Biden victory, this is the scenario we're looking at. You don't want this, obviously so. Um, we'll go into scenario three and four real quick, and then we'll we'll wrap this section of this up. Scenario three, a contested result. Comparable war, the Irish War of Independence. This is a scary scenario involving the blue team getting enough states for a win, but not quite enough senators to take over the Senate, and a replacement for Ginsburg on the court in the lame duck session. Here's how it can play out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unlike the previous scenario, here, split, split slates or... Decertification in key states gives Trump a plausible majority or at least a plurality. It doesn't even have to be razor thin. A 320-vote win for Biden can be turned into a loss with only the Republican legislatures in Florida, North Carolina, and Wisconsin failing to follow the voters' will. The three Trump appointees, Alito and, Tom, or Alito and Thomas, ratify these shenanigans over the objection of Roberts, and all hell breaks loose. The first shots likely will be in Wisconsin, as every member of the state legislature is targeted by one side or another, but it will soon spread. In this scenario, no elected or appointed official will be safe. The National Guard will be called in everywhere, and not for the same reason each time. This is a true brother-against-brother brother scenario. 
here we have a ruling authority that is seen as illegitimate and tyrannical by some, but not all Americans. And that punishes the people that don't that don't vote for him. Trump's military will try to remain neutral, but there will be plenty of available armed soldiers at Bill Barr's command. The pandemic, remember that, will ravage unchecked, leading to a supply or leading to supply shortages and hunger. This conflict will drag on for some time. In the heart of that, we'll find out what Joe Biden is made of. He talks a good game, all spit, fire, and bluster, but this is a real test. Al Gore conceded after Bush versus Gore, and Biden knows what that did for the country. He's a Catholic. Is he willing to be an anti-pope? Biden's an Irish Catholic, so he knows the history of Ireland over the last few centuries. This is an assumption on, on Mike's part, and I'm hoping he's right. Perhaps still angry over the failed and French bat backed Irish Rebellion of 1798, the British Crown let an entire nation starve in the Irish potato famine, and the Irish never forgot that. In the wake of World War I, the Irish Republican Army was born, the IRA. The conflict kicked off in earnest with the Easter Rising of 1916, in which 485 people were killed. The IRA waged a guerrilla war campaign against the outnumbered but well-supplied British troops. By 1920, Republicans won control of nearly every every county council in Ireland and had seized control of the South and West, leading to the Crown instituting emergency powers. On Bloody Sunday, the IRA assassinated 11 British and Irish police and a civilian informant in response. Its British-aligned counterpart, the Royal Irish Constabulary, opened fire on a crowd at a Gaelic football match. So... And this is where, and he goes on to um, tie it to what it would look like in the United States. And and I'm going to somewhat paraphrase here because, again, like I said, this article is long. He's basically saying that, that it would be a contested election because of the amount of power Republicans have currently. Trump could use that to upsurp the election and or to... To uh, not absurd, but to put the election in his favor, making him the president very highly contested. You would then see extreme left liberals um, starting to riot. Not that we're not seeing that already, but start starting to riot and to march the streets and to basically say, hey, look, our government isn't working for us. This is bullshit. And starting against the government and, and rising up at which point uh, our, or w at which point Trump would then use the military to quell the protesters. I would argue in this scenario, and, and I will do a little analysis here quickly, that the difference here is, is that I don't know that the United States has a, backer in a larger country like like Ireland did with England with like southern Ireland did with with England and so I don't know this scenario seems oh probably to me the craziest of of all of them a little bit um and then he but he argues uh that that and this is, and he kind of, or somewhat argues this here. He says the Democrats and others on the left don't have much experience 
with the kind of organ I'm paraphrasing with the kind of organization it takes for the uprising. Despite the drum beats on Fox, there is no Black Lives Matter militia. If this is where we go, leftists will have a huge military disadvantage. I don't see this as a winning approach. A possible outcome of this scenario is the breakup of the United States. It could be similar to Ireland breaking away with with much of the West and or Northeast forming a new union, or it could be a number of smaller nation states similar to what followed in the Yugoslavian Civil War. The West and Northeast is something like three-quarters of the U.S., economy so don't expect states to be allowed to leave quietly um that said guerrilla war might actually be the best outcome since both sides will know they don't have a stranglehold on power they will act as if any engagement could be their last ireland managed to function for all of the 20th century through civil war occupation and eventually free rule we can do that too it certainly is not something to be hoped for Okay, final scenario, and, and probably the the worst one, and, and this one is the one that really gave me pause and some chill, is scenario for a full-out Trump win. His comparable war, uh, for God help us all, is the Rwandan Civil War. I saved the worst for last, he says. In this scenario, Trump clearly though probably not without some voter suppression, wins a narrow majority, and the Democrats don't take the Senate. Ginsburg is replaced because Trump has a mandate, which he does. Biden and his fellow moderates are blamed for blowing the election, which I'm already hearing the left do. And and I'm hearing a lot of friends of mine that are... Um, that our libertarians kind of show the same thing, like voting between the lesser of two evils. And then I'm hearing that amongst the left too. Uh, and then it's whether or not it's actually their fault. Mike says the, the Biden and fellow moderates, this is the opposite scenario of the Biden blowout. The Democrats collapse and progressives become really, really angry. Those who voted green or stayed home are called out and threatened. The Sanders wing leaves the party for good. You know, normal political stuff. If that's all that it involved, and if that's all that would happen in this scenario, we could live with it. That's not going to happen. Republicans won't be content with a win. They will burn every civil right they can find. Trump's Hitler Youth-like patriotic education plan, and he puts a nice link to a New York Times article here for that and it is it's a little it's a little spooky plan will become a reality gun control will become a remnant of history a disillusioned left will become exactly what fox news wants them to be violent the president will be thrilled to meet fire with an inferno the defining feature of life in the 21st century america or the defining feature of life in 21st century america is tribalism he's got a good um, new york article there that's a belief that the other side is basically a completely different species. Nations overcome tribalism by finding common causes, often common enemies. We've been given a perfect opportunity in 2020, but the coronavirus has not brought us together against a common enemy. Instead, it has highlighted that one side is gun-toting, mask-avoiding morons, and the other side is fake news-loving, freedom-squashing libtards. He's not wrong here. These are his words, but I agree. It's divided us. 
What we do not have is a belief, he goes on to say, what we do not have is a belief that everyone on the other side is worth saving. That is the recipe for the worst kind of disaster. A full tyrant Trump encouraging violence upon his enemies will be followed by violence upon his enemies. It will take only one clash to put us where Rwanda was on October 1st, 1990. And I, I'm i not going to go into the Rwandan Civil War. It's bloody. It's disgusting. It's dirty. Watch. There's all kinds of materials out there. If you want just a good movie that that really sums up a lot of what was going on, I seriously suggest you all watch a movie called Hotel Rwanda. It's phenomenal. And it... it it's it's a true based on a true story and it goes into a lot of what was going on and it's basically to, to paraphrase you had a government that came to power um that became a full dictatorship and it was based on uh race superiority and superiority of a group of people over another and the um minority group was not happy with this. They raised up violently against the uh, the government in power, and there were years of heavy, bloody, violent fighting that killed millions and millions of people. Um, and so he compares this. Uh, um. Basically, he says, on April 6, 1994, to close out the Rwandan peace, he says that on that date, the assassination of Rwandan President Juneval Habariyamana and Burundian President Cyprian Niteyamaria, both Hudu, um, broke the flood doors Wide. Within 100 days, a million people died in violence directly by the Hutu against the Tutsi and moderates in their own group. Even so, the Tutsi won and seized control of the nation, which remains one of the most repressive regimes in Africa. This is what happens when one side sees the other as cockroaches. Um, he said, I've met many people, different ones to be sure, who've pointed to the positive outcomes of the American Civil War, the Russian Revolution, and the Irish War of Independence. I have never met anyone who believes anything positive occurred in Rwanda in the first half of the 1990s. But that's what we have to look forward to if a re-elected Trump administration becomes warlike. There's no guarantee that there's no guarantee that will occur. It's possible that the left will accept defeats in the wake of Georgia's voter poll or voter roll purging, the Ukraine scandal, the demolition of the Postal Service and Russian attempts to meddle yet again. If you believe that, you're not reading my Twitter feed, as he says. But if a Rwandan-style war does break out, expect complete military compliance with the re-elected Trump government. There will be no crisis of conscience from the Joint Chiefs of Staff because there will be a different Joint Chiefs of Staff, one with fewer compunctions about killing Americans. Those are four plausible scenarios of civil war after this election. All wars are different, so we could see any number of variations on these themes. It should be clear 
that if you are facing one of these, if, if you are facing one of these options, what you want is the clearest moral authority, the widest acceptance of your military, and the broadest coalition of international powers on your side. You want the tanks in the hands of the person who wants peace. Oh, and one more detail. In three of the four wars I laid out, the leader of the country was assassinated. The fighting continued despite the regime change. Trump is not the only warrior here. He's especially not the best warrior. If he isn't there, someone else will take his place. And, and he says, Biden is not the only peacenik either. Plenty of people on both sides don't want a civil war, but we should be thinking about it. If violence is inevitable, we should know what types of violence we might get and vote for the one where the responsible people have the firepower. When you vote, vote as if a civil war is coming and you are deciding who you want to have the nuclear weapons. Personally, I would not want that to be Trump. The doomsday clock is set at 45 days to midnight currently. So that's the end of his article. And, and let me give you my bit of breakdown on it. This article scared the living shit out of me, quite honestly. And, and this is my, this is my uh, copying an attitude for this, relating to this particular article. Now, I don't disagree with what, or I don't disagree with his historical breakdowns of these wars and of these battles. Um, and he makes fair points of the violence level in this country right now, and of the fear and the paranoia and the anger and the, frustration and the want to blame somebody anybody and and the fact of the matter is is that that blame if blame should be placed anywhere it should be placed on our elected leaders they are failing us and they have been for decades and that's the thing you know here's the deal I don't, as a Democrat, I'm not happy that the National Democrats put Joe Biden in as our candidate. I'm not. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the man. And quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of old, you know, old white dudes taking over and, and, and becoming president. This is ridiculous. I mean, I, I realize that 35 is the minimum age to be elected, but, you know, it comes out that I'm going to be 35 and uh, January 1st, 2020. So maybe, if we're still here, maybe I'll run for president in 2024 because it's about time to me that we got somebody that comes from an actual working class background that wasn't born with a civil spoon or a civil, a silver spoon in their mouth and that worked their ass through college and got their education through the blood of their hands and the sweat of their brow and can teach some of these guys that all come from money and that's the only way they got into office because they knew somebody and they went through who they knew. It's old Metallica lyric and it's an old saying too, but it's not who you are, it's who you know. And I'm tired of that. And I think a lot of people are tired of that. But the, the easy thing to do is to blame the, is to blame the, you know, the easiest person. Blame blame the immigrants that are quote-unquote coming in and taking our jobs. There's no evidence of that. And if they, and and 
quite frankly, and I've talked to I've talked to extreme conservatives, and when I've talked to them with with common sense, and said, you know, really think about it. Think about what what you know immigrants are doing. Right? They're they're roofing a lot. I've seen a lot of immigrant groups, uh, especially Latin American roofing groups. I've seen you know they're picking picking all kinds of crops. They're doing hard, egregious, heavy manual labor. They're doing things that no white guy, at least in America, would want to do without good pay and good benefits, and rightly so. But at the same token, shouldn't anybody doing those jobs have good pay and good benefits? You know, see, this is the thing. This is where the power brokers come in and they pit us against each other because we shouldn't be going after a group of people that are coming here for a better life. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a group of people that wanted to come here for a better life. My grandfather's parents came here, both sides, my mom's dad and my dad's dad. They came here for a better life. My dad's dad, my, my great-grandfather on my dad's side from Ireland, my great-grandfather and grandmother on my mom's side from Italy, they were immigrants. They came here, worked hard, and and faced all kinds of scrutiny to become Americans and to make a better life for themselves. We should not stop people from wanting to do that. And, you know, it's easy to blame them for the fact that the owners of businesses are the ones who are using these people to, are, are using these human beings against another set of human beings. They're paying them under the table. They're paying them less than a livable wage. And it's not these people's fault that they're accepting it. A less than livable wage for us is monumentally more money than they ever made, than these people ever made in the countries they come from. This is not our fault as other workers. This is not their fault as workers. This is fault of the business owners that are raking in obscene profits to pay this. And that's the thing. You want to look at farm workers? Here's the deal. You know, and in and, and family farms, what our government should be doing, since they subsidize farming anyway, they should be subsidizing these farmers so that they can pay these people a livable wage. That's the thing. Price, yes, and I will agree with, with my conservative friends. Prices of everything go up if people are making more money. That's fine. But if everybody's making more money, they'll be able to pay the higher prices. This is how it works. And if you're paying people a good wage and you're paying them insurance and you're making sure they're taken care of, you can regulate stuff and make sure that the product, the quality of product that's being made is the best possible. You get what you pay for. That's an old saying that, that you don't hear a lot anymore that stands true. I am happy to pay as, as a, I am happy to pay more money for a product that I know is made in the United States, made by a union worker, and that's made at a quality standard that has been checked and certified. There are products that used to be made here whose quality has gone to shit because they are being made in China or other places where the workers are being paid nothing 
They are just working to survive. They're trying, they're under pressure to churn out as much of a product as they possibly can, as fast as they can. So quality standards are in a toilet. This is what happens. So this is what I'm saying. The, to, to tie this into this article, we need to care about each other as human beings. We need to not allow ourselves to be pitted against each other. We need to care about each other, love each other, and try to help each other. And just and we need to get jealousy aside because somebody has a little bit more than you do. Don't hate that person because somebody has less than you do and they're struggling. Don't hate that person. Work to get everybody on the rise. Work together. I know that's utopian and I know people are going to say, oh, that's, that's hippie bullshit. Well, maybe it is. But the fact of the matter is if we want to avoid these scenarios and we want to avoid the collapse of this country because the population of this country, the workers and the average Joe that isn't in politics or isn't doing this because they're being manipulated and made to hate each other so that the power structure that's in place can succeed and maintain, that's ridiculous. We cannot let ourselves be played this way. And that is, that's what I'm arguing for this. That's why this article made my blood run so cold as I realize where we're at. And I realize that, that, that we as a nation have allowed ourselves to become this way because people haven't taken a second to stop. And I realize that's hard to do right now with everybody working their asses off, but we haven't taken a time to stop and think and reflect Learn from our past, learn what made us good, learn what made us work. And what made us work is working together, was union jobs, was workers caring about each other and working together to make sure that the man was, that there wasn't a small group of people that had all the money that were making a lar much larger group of people miserable. It was that larger group of people working together to ensure that they had the good life and their bosses made that their bosses were ensuring they had the good life and yeah an owner of a company yeah they made a quite a bit more money than their workers did but they didn't make so much that their workers were starving to death and dying in the factories and barely able to scrape by on two incomes in a household that's not what we that's not what the united states was that's not what we are that's not what we should be and that's my that's my attitude on on that um, I want to quickly jump into uh, passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I, <laughs> be honest with you, I shed a few tears that day. Um, the woman or Ruth passed away from from cancer, and I I personally know uh, from experience what that what being a family member of somebody who's going with that bat through that battle is like. And she had so much she wanted to hang on for. And, and, and I know what that's like. I know she wanted so badly to hang on until, um, we had a Democrat in office or somebody that wasn't a, a selfish, conceited, only in it for themselves, uh, person, because I'm sorry, you know, if, if you're a Trump supporter and listening to this, I want you to really think about what you, you know, why you think he's anything worth a shit. Because everything I've read, everything I've seen, I just finished his um, niece's book 
uh, Mary Trump, and she goes into to what made him, and, it, and I actually felt um, somewhat sympathetic, well, not even sympathetic, I felt sorry for him, because he was built this, he's built the way he is. His dad was a narcissistic piece of shit, treated Trump's brother Fred like shit, and Trump, through seeing this, realized that the only way to get his dad's love was to treat his brother equally as shit and absurd his place in the family business. And the only reason Donald Trump doesn't know failure and doesn't know what it's like to have to have to learn from a mistake is because his dad enabled him for 60 years. And I, you know, I, sorry, I can't support a man who has openly bragged about treating women like shit sexually abusing women. I can't support a man who will not say that when there are supporters at his own rallies with Nazi flags and with U.S., and even worse, with U.S., well, yeah, even worse, U.S. flags with swastikas on them, that these people are not American. They're not right. They don't follow our beliefs. They need to go. If you will not squash these people... And you will not not denounce these people. You fucking suck. Plain and simple. You fucking suck. That's my grandfather and so many of his brothers of his generation died to stop Nazism. They died to stop a group of people from systematically killing millions of other people because of their religion, because of their race, because of their eye color. Because they weren't, they weren't white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed human beings. I can't support that, and that's to me that's why it's so amazing about about RBG. One of the one of the many many things is she wanted so badly to hold out until we got some normalcy, some decency, some compassion, and some common sense back in this country, and she just she tried so hard. And she just couldn't do it. And now we face the possibility of a woman being nominated into the Supreme Court after one president was set to wait until an election was over before this was done. The same fucking assholes that set that precedent, the fucking hypocrites, are going to double back and put their tails between their legs and say, oh, no, this needs to happen. We weren't, we were joking. We, we, we were, we were, we were funning. We we're not going to do what we said. We're not going to have any backbone. We're not going to be strong and actually go by the precedent that we set before. We're going to nominate this person and this person, this Amy Coney Barrett, I've been doing research on her. I've been looking at her background she's a religious conservative um she is also as a constitutional scholar this is something that drives me crazy she's an originalist and the idea of originalism is it's the the idea that the people who are originalists they interpret the constitution in that it asserts that all statements in the constitution must be interpreted based on the original understanding of the author's or the people at the time that it was ratified. And what's interesting about the, and then they also, it even to some extremes in that 
or original or in that originalist mentality it's we it, it's similar to religious groups christian religious groups that interpret the bible verbatim as written this is what god meant these are god's words and they don't look at any other source outside of the bible or in this case outside of the constitution to determine what the thought processes were that went into the creation of that document or anything else and to me as a historian that's piss poor um knowledge and that's piss poor understanding and that's piss poor interpretation our founding fathers that wrote our constitution were thinking feeling understanding individuals that's why when uh, you if you watch interviews with constitutional scholars or you read papers that are published by by good constitutional scholars they cite the constitution yes but they realize that that document was made by people who had i other ideas that were not necessarily written in that document they wrote that document to be fluid and they did the best they could to make that document fluid they didn't want it set in stone because they realized times change people evolve and ideas change they did not want a set in stone policy because a set in stone policy was exactly what they were rebelling against they were rebelling against a government that did not adapt and did not change to the needs of its citizenry and the fact that that government had expanded out and had sent its people over to a different land to settle it and because they were basically not adapting to the changes that the people or the changes that the early settlers in the colonies were facing because the british government didn't adapt to that the british nationals that were in the colonies were pissed they said look you guys you're clear over there you're governing us and you don't know what it's like to be here we so they got pissed and they broke away and they realized that if we're going to start a country and we're going to create a government it needs to be able to be fluid to change and to adapt to the changes that occur as a government expands as a population expands as manifest destiny took over it needed to adapt and change to all that and i'm sorry to miss barrett but this ain't 1776 we don't have muskets we aren't dying of cholera we're not dying of fucking smallpox well, hopefully god willing anymore we are an advanced technologically sound technologically advanced nation rules from many of the rules from 1776 do not work and do not apply today and the fact that the republicans are pushing this woman is and, and again maybe call this what we will or for me i'm going to call this another another copying an attitude this whole segment but this woman her ideas of the constitution do not work in today's day and age and if and if you all want to time travel back to 1776 go find doc brown and the delorean and i'll tell you what when you arrive there if you survive a year good fucking luck and because that's not a time period i want to live in and go back to
I'm impressed by the men that survived that, and I'm impressed by the men that lived that time period, and I'm impressed by the men that set the course for where we are today, but I don't want to go back. We need to be looking forward, not looking back. And that's my take on, on this setup, and I hope somehow or another the Democrats fight this tooth and nail and don't let this go down if they can possibly help it. A precedent was set, and you spineless bastards set it. And speaking of which, since we're going on this rant and we're talking about uh, spinelessness in the Republican Party, um, and well, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, if I see it in the Democrats, I'm going to call them out too. I'm a, I'm a, a bear. I'm a, I'm an even-handed even-handed archivist and an even-handed historian. And then if you're, you're full of shit, I'm going to call you on being full of shit. And I don't care what party you're part of. Um, but so a couple of things here, and this is one, this is a frustration I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've, I watched, um, I recently watched a couple of really, really good, uh, Vietnam war era films. Um, the cold war, Vietnam war, Korean war, that whole period in us history, is probably one of my favorite is probably my favorite era or area of study um in terms of u.s history i think that more than any other uh more than any other time period that has had the greatest impact on our recent understanding of of who we are and what we are as a country and i think it's important to uh to study that area or excuse me, study that era of history. And so I watched a couple of, of Vietnam War era films that I had read and been told from some history professors. Hmm. Excuse me a second. I didn't get a drink of water there, but I had been told that they were some of the most realistic films to to watch and, and to get a feel for. And so I watched a film called Hamburger Hill, which is about a uh, about a five day, five or six day battle, maybe longer in in Vietnam that was basically to take a hill that the North Vietnamese had fortified and hunkered down in, and it cost several hundred American lives or American soldier lives and a couple of thousand. I want to say a couple of thousand. Uh, uh, Vietnamese lives to gain a hill that was shortly thereafter abandoned because it had no real strategic reasoning to uh, for anything. There was no reason to spend the time and effort and lives that it took to take that hill because it had no strategic importance. Um, so to watch that movie and to to watch what those guys were feeling and to see that it's it's phenomenal. It's a really really good movie. It's actually. Having seen it, finally, it's probably of of all the Vietnam War films I've seen. Probably, um, at least in terms of the battle portions of it, my favorite. I still think one of my favorites. Uh, next, to that is Good Morning Vietnam, uh, fascinating film too. And then the other film I watched um, was the Hanoi Hilton, and both these films are available on Amazon Prime right now. So if you guys have Prime memberships and I'm not plugging Amazon I'm just saying uh, for availability of sources if you guys have have Amazon Prime get them and then they're also available on DVD you can get them for fairly cheap on on Amazon as well 
um, watch them. They're great. Hanoi Hilton and and uh, Hamburger Hill and Hanoi Hilton was about was about the Hanoi Hilton, the uh, prison camp and the treatment of American um, American officers uh, and American soldiers in in POWs in Vietnam, and it's painful and it's gut wrenching. And one and was fascinating to me, and, and it ties into modern history again because one of the um, people that helped on the Hanoi Hilton film was John McCain. Um, he was six years, I think, five and a half or six years, possibly longer, um, a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton and suffered unbearable torture and unbearable violence and and wound up making a confession just to get the pain to stop all those guys thought they were going to die and i and i want you to watch this movie for a couple of for for not only to get a feeling of what that era was like and what those guys were going through but but to put something with this upcoming election into perspective and this is what kills me and it's it's it made me sick is president trump several years ago um and when he was running was talking shit about john mccain and had said that he was a coward and that he was weak because he had been captured and that that made him a loser and and having watched those films and seeing having a visualization for what Senator McCain had to have gone through and survived and still came out on the other side of, and then went on to do the, you know, and I'm, and I will honestly say, I'm not necessarily always was never always the biggest fan of some of his policies, but I will never take away the fact that that man was a hero, fought hard, was strong and did things that very few other men have ever had to do to just survive, to live, to come home and be home again and to see his family. It's and for that, for our president to call him weak and to make fun of him for being captured and held as a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War and to suffer what he suffered, Trump wouldn't have lasted a day. He wouldn't have lasted an hour. They would have had him tied, and as soon as he had to face the head of that prison, he'd have been singing like a canary, and he would have sold his men out. And I'm not saying that I could do any better or any worse. I hope to God I never have to face such a situation. My grandfather fought in a war, and he told me he's in both of them. My grandfather, my grandpa Harry, and my grandpa Al both told me. They said, you know what? We did this so you don't have to. We don't want you to have to ever see and ever go through what we went through. And for John McCain to have done that and then to be made fun of for it is absurd. And that alone for me is reason enough not to vote for that awful human being that sits in the White House currently. And also his cohorts, his Republican cohorts, the spineless, wanton cowardice of guys like Ted Cruz and, and another gentleman, his name escapes me at the moment, but where Trump made fun of their wives, of their families, 
on the debate stages and said that, I think it was Ted Cruz that he said his dad, he, he basically alluded to or outright said that his dad was responsible, partially responsible for Kennedy's assassination. I'm sorry, I'd have been willing to go to jail. And, and I think you talk shit about Ted Cruz's wife. I'm sorry, if I'm on a debate stage and motherfucker talks shit about my wife, I'm going to knock him the fuck out. I don't care if he's a potential presidential candidate. I'm fucking knocking his teeth down his fucking throat and he will never talk shit about me, my family, or my wife again. And then for that spineless, wormless bastard, Cruz, to now kiss up to this man every fucking chance he gets to kiss up and say, oh, Donald, I love you, and oh, Donald, you're so right. When the man on in public on an open forum made fun of him and, and his wife and his family, and you kiss his ass. And, and, and all those guys that he cut or that he cast shade on in the 16 election and the primaries for the Republicans, all those guys that kiss up to him now after the horrible things he said about them, you guys are fucking spineless. You guys need to be men and stand up. And if a man, you don't, I don't give a shit. I realize politics is a dirty game. But for fuck's sake, you can say anything you want about me. And this is this thing my stepdad always instilled in me, and I appreciate it because it's a very Southern thing. You can say anything the fuck you want about me, and most of it, I'll let it roll off my back. But if you talk shit about me, or my, excuse me, if you talk shit about my family, my wife, my kids, I'm kicking your fucking ass, and I'm not going to forget it, and I'm never going to forget it. And the fact that those fucking worthless bastards will let him say the shit he did and not stand up for their families, are you're fucking worthless. And as far as I'm concerned, you don't, your wife should have left you and your kids should have kicked you in the nuts. Plain and simple. And that's how it goes. So let's get off the anger and try to close on um, some information and a little positivity today. Um, this The last piece I want to talk about actually came from... Uh, from my wife, she sent it to me last night in a little Facebook message, and it's a really fascinating um, little piece. It comes from adfontesmedia.com, and I'll put the, the link to this, and it's the media bias chart that they put out every year. And we've talked a lot about this on this program, well-researched media sources and who to go to and who to look at for for true facts and, and good analysis and solid analysis. And they've got this pyramid and this source based out and it's it's on, it's got several dividing sections in it and, and it's pretty much, so left to right is based on the uh, political uh, spectrum. Left being le far left, liberal, right being conservative, fascist, you know, left being liberal, socialist, communist, da, 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 far right being fascists, uh, theists, that kind of thing. And what's fascinating to me is the most central news sources on this chart um, are the AP, are the Weather Channel, um, are uh, PBS, The Hill, uh, Politico, Time, Forbes, and right at the tippy top of this thing are 
RP, our public, the public broadcasting service, NPR and BBC. So if y'all want centrist, just the facts, ma'am, to quote Dragnet kind of news sources, that's where you go. And then to the left, we've got Vox, Mother Jones, Huffington Post, Quartz, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, uh, New York Times, Times. And these are just slightly to the left, mind you. These aren't super way far out there. What the other and probably the most fascinating part about this chart is that they have the chart broken down into sections of reliability of um, uh, the, the, one of the keys. Or, ah, the sections are broken down by a key that says most reliable for news, uh, reliable for news, but high in analysis, opinion content, some reliability issues and or extremism and then serious reliability issues and or extremism and what's fascinating to me and again i'll post this chart so you guys can all take a look at it on the website or on the on the description of the the uh um on on the description for this podcast episode there are a lot more right-wing news sources, including Fox and Infowars and, um, oh man, we got an OAN and Breitbart and American Thinking and a whole bunch. There's a whole lot more right-wing news sources in the, uh, some reliability issues and or extremism and serious reliability issues and or extremism section. So many more right-wing news sources fall into that category than, than left-wing. And that makes me feel good being on the side of the political spectrum I'm on. And this is something we've been saying, and I don't ever want to sound elite. And I want to say that flat out because I think that's one of the areas that the Democrats kick themselves in the ass for is that they don't, do what Malcolm X said to do, and that is to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. They don't talk to people. They don't get out and talk to the common because common man, you know, and, and I think sometimes they take for granted that people, education comes in different forms. Not everybody's going to be super book smart, but if you can explain things to people in a way that they can palate and understand and process and make sense of, that's how you get your message out, and that's how you do your job. So, and I think that's what's what's missing. But this this site is just fascinating because it's a great tool to understand where to get solid news source from. So I am going to post this, and I want to thank my wife Monica for for sending that to me, and and I think it's very very cool, and it's a great great little piece of information. Um, and I want to wrap up today, and and one last little thing I, I just want to say you know to the few of y'all who listen to me regularly as i post thank you um you know if if you have any inclination tell your friends uh pass the word of this on because as the election season continues on and and things get crazy i'm going to try to do some analysis of the debates and and things like that and because i think this is important i think we're at a very very major linchpin in our society I think we've got a bunch of crazy shit going on right now. I think, you know, the 2020 memes of how fucked this year has been 
are not wrong, but I think if we can band together, take a breath, calm down, not be angry, not be violent with each other, you know, the vast majority of us are all in the same boat, whether we realize it or not. And if we can all calm down, take a breath, take care of each other, love one another, help each other out, get over our differences and find a way to work together, we can we can do this. We can survive and we can be a whole lot better group of people together than we can be separate. And and I hope for that. So as I go to close today, I'm going to steal from Bill S. Preston and, and Theodore Logan and tell you, everybody, for the greater good and, and for all of us and for all of you, be excellent to each other and we will see you shortly.